0: hello and welcome to the spiraling higher podcast hosted by me sam mindset
1: and manifestation coach and me gina your biz and mindset coach we're here to support you on your spiritual journey by bringing you intimate and raw conversations about healing manifestation consciousness and spirituality
0: we hope this podcast makes you feel less alone as you become aware of your patterns and limiting beliefs to uplevel your life manifest like a boss and together
1: Spiral Higher. Welcome back to the Spiraling Higher podcast. We are sitting here with Lorianne, who is actually my mentor in my breathwork program. Um, so obviously, I am your one of your hosts, Gina, and I have Sam, your other co-host here as well. And today's episode is really going to be going deep into somatic work. What does that even mean? And really understanding how our nervous systems can be used to help us heal and really just understanding those systems a lot better. So first of all, welcome, Lorianne.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you.
1: Just so everybody knows, I always call Lorianne my angel. <laughs> She came into my life through this program at the most perfect timing, and you just really have been such an incredible mentor for me. Um, But yeah, let's just jump right in. I would love for you to explain what somatic work means. Mm, Yeah, the big question, right?
2: Um, So soma means body, and somatic work is basically working with the felt experience of the body. A lot of approaches that have been very popular for decades now, like psychotherapy, like coaching, which are great approaches and have a lot of value. But they have Mm -hmm. been focused on the cognitive mind, the thoughts, the beliefs. Yeah. And, you know, as Mm -hmm. much as there is value to that, as I was saying, um, it can feel like it takes a lot of effort. Sometimes when we go through... um, those sessions and those approaches that are very top down, um, it can feel like like we're forcing a new belief. Let's force this affirmation. And it can feel like, mm. like we're pushing something onto us. And when we work with the body, we work with the emotions, with the sensations that are here now. So usually that brings us back to a sense of, of presence and grounding. And I think mm. most of us <laughs> need a little bit more presence and grounding in this day and age. Um, But when we come back to what our body has to tell us, we can complete certain cycles of stress responses, of trauma responses that have not been completed. And we can get through a sense of restoration, a new sense of aliveness into our bodies.
0: Mm. I love that because I think Mm. so many of us can relate to this. But for years and years, I would have therapists ask me, like, where do I feel that in my body? Or what am I feeling? And I'm like, I don't know. Yes. Like <laughs> I had such a hard time identifying <laughs> any sensation. And I think that's because so many of us, um, and especially in my own journey, I really made emotions mean something negative so Mm -hmm. I know now that emotions don't Mm -hmm. have a negative meaning inherently but maybe through a traumatic experience I learned that this emotion is not good to feel or this emotion will lead to a bad result for me Um, I was definitely shamed for crying and so Mm -hmm. that definitely was for me just taught that we don't do that so that emotion was so hard for me to tap into and I think honestly for years like maybe even A decade, I went without crying. And then someone recently told me that'd be like going a decade without laughing. And Mm. I was like, wow, that is crazy. Like my body just was like, we're not doing that. And so as soon as I started to really tap back into these emotions, they felt so big. And Mm -hmm. I understand why people Mm. suppress them because. I really did not believe in my capability to handle and process that. And I think I want to ask you a little bit about processing an emotion because I think that when people say, oh, you need to process your feelings, what they mean is to obviously feel that through your body. But when we hear that, we think, oh, I need to think about it. Because mm-hmm. even Gina would say, oh, I need to process this. And I'm yeah. like, that, n- no, <laughs> because you would think you would be saying that I need to think about it more. And I'm like, you don't need to think about it more. You need to just yeah. feel it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I love what you're sharing in that experience because it's so common that people are naming that if I start touching that sadness, yeah. that grief, that anger that is that I know is present within me, it's going to take over. I'm not going to be able to function. I don't know how I'm going to be a person or go to work. It just feels like mm-hmm. it's going to be all encompassing. And, you know, there are ways that we start touching those feelings in a way that what we call it in trauma work is titration. And, you know, Gina has heard me talk about this so much. Um, but titration is such an important I love concept. This. And it's a concept that it comes from chemistry, which I'm not going to go into. Chem- I'm not a chemist, so I'm not going to go in science. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> it's it's just the idea of taking little sips of an experience, finding the right pace. So sometimes when it comes to feeling an emotion, we're going to start contacting that emotion. What if we were to feel 1% of that sadness? What if we were to access 1% of that grief? Or if there's a narrative. that that comes up that is just like, and then this happened and this happened and I had this whole experience. Okay, let's just stay with one piece of it and see if we can process that. And that can feel really, really helpful because we then start to metabolize an experience or an emotion at a pace where we're not constantly overwhelmed and blasting ourselves open. Because for many of us, especially in healing and modalities Mm. that are not necessarily trauma-informed, we have this big, big, big emotional release, but then we're not able to come back and integrate it and metabolize it. And then, you know, make that, um, find meaning in that experience in a way that's sustainable. We kind of like keep
1: going, you know? Mm. Yeah. The titration thing has really, really helped me. I think, We use that term differently. We would say like baby steps, you know, taking baby steps, which um, we've talked a lot about on this podcast. But with healing especially, I think the titration for me has given me permission to do it slowly, to do it in a way that does feel safe. Um, Obviously, our listeners know a little bit about the grief that I've been experiencing with the passing of my mother-in-law. And same kind of thing. I think at first I was like, okay, I'm going to process all of this. I'm going to deal with all of this. I'm going to heal through all of this. But like you said, it's so big and you almost drowned underneath it, which then makes you feel like you can't handle it. And it just starts to be this chain reaction of events where I just get more and more contracted. Whereas when I started to introduce that concept of hydration, like I said, it really allowed me to say, this is enough for today. This This is all I can think about it for today. And now what's the next best step that's going to offer me safety? And sometimes that was just completely ignoring it and just doing something completely different, you know, spending time with my daughter. Sometimes it was also titration to go back into real life again, right? So not jumping right back into work, not jumping right back into social situations, really honoring the boundaries of what feels safe for me. And so one of the days I did just stay in my room and I just needed a day to cry in in, in peace without anybody around and that was titration for me. So just trying to offer some examples of how you can apply that because I think like you said, we get these little sips and then we almost build up that trust within ourselves that we can hold space for this emotion.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And what's so wise and what you're sharing in your experience is also that sense of of healing and processing a little bit and then coming back to something that's resourcing for us. So whether it's spending time Time with our loved ones, Mm. whether it's doing something like going in nature, that's so important. Um, I think sometimes there's such an urgency with healing of just like, I need to process Mm. all of this because I want to feel better. And I think that comes from a good place, but sometimes it's too much. We're not meant to be processing 24 seven and going to therapy and journaling and meditating, going to a (laughs) treat and having that sense of like, let me take a little sip of this and, and, really integrate it and process it and then go back and, and be a person and watch something on Netflix that just feels good and makes me laugh, you know? So I love I love that you named that. Mm. That's very wise. Mm.
0: Yeah. I love that approach and that you named that because I think so many people who are listening to this can relate to, to us wanting to, <laughs> to being those people who are like, okay, I got to go to therapy and I got to do this session and then I got to heal because it feels like the emotion is the thing that's in the way of us getting to where we want to go Mm. and I know that um, my story with emotions was these are literally preventing me from being in alignment Mm. is kind of the story that I had for a long time like Mm -hmm. it's because of these emotions that I'm not thinking clearly it's because of these emotions that I can't take action in alignment with what I want to do like these emotions are stopping me and so that story about my emotions just kept creating so much resistance to them I could never allow them because I was like well these are These are wrong and bad and preventing me from what I want to feel. And um, I really had to rewrite that story. And so I would love for you to talk about the relationship between emotion and story Mm -hmm. because I think it's very hard for us as humans to experience emotion without story. I really think the only people that can do this are babies. Like they experience emotion without any sort of, you know, mental reaction. But the rest of us, we're so conditioned to have A mental reaction to how we're feeling. You know, I think about how many people start to emote and then immediately are apologizing for that. I think that's that's something that I'm always doing. Like I never not apologize for like crying or being in a quote unquote bad mood. The fact that we even know what a bad mood and a good mood is, right? So we're already sort of hierarchically defining certain emotions as better or worse. And so when those harder ones come along, let's say you know moodiness, anger, anxiety, sadness. How can we allow space for that as we would with joy, which I know some people have trouble with, but, you know, joy, happiness, Mm. ease without, yeah, like causing the resistance. Because I feel I read something recently that said if you don't ever allow emotion to start, then you never allow it Mm. to end. And that really resonated with me because Mm. i'm i'm that person i'm that person that has a really hard time with allowing something to start i've actually started doing the titration but on i didn't know that's what it was i i recently started doing that actually because this morning i was noticing like a little bit of like emotion i was like okay this is here a little bit of this and then no big deal but um a lot of times, I'm not capable of doing titration. I'm either like totally fine or literally not okay at all. <laughs> so, and I and I think that a lot of people can yeah. relate to that. So, I would love for you to talk a little bit about emotions and stories or thoughts and how those are mm. often um, correlated. Mm. Yeah, that's
2: so powerful and it's it's great that you named babies because um from my perspective um it comes a lot those stories that are related to emotions are very much related to our experiences with our caregivers. Um and and you know m- mm-hmm. many of us didn't have the experience of being having accurate reflection. Um we learned to name our emotions by having our caregiver be like, "Oh, I Like, what's making you upset? I'm noticing that you're angry. And we kind of make that connection Mm. between, oh, I'm feeling this feeling of anger. And that's the word that goes with it. So for people who sometimes have challenges Mm. naming their emotions, sometimes they didn't have that experience of having that attunement and that reflection from their caregiver. Oftentimes the stories that come with emotions, especially when there's shame around emotions, are related to those experiences of feeling anger and then being sent out to our rooms. And then we're little ones. We don't know what to do with that anger. Developmentally, we're not in a place where we can process that. Mm -hmm. So often when we have the capacity to notice those narratives that might come up when we have an emotions, it can be really supportive to ask whose voice is that? And for many people, it's sometimes it's dad, sometimes it's mom, sometimes it's the whole lineage and how they were processing their emotions. So Mm. that's a really, really big thing to work through. And sometimes it takes some time to develop the capacity in our nervous system to just feel an emotion. And let that wave fast because they are like waves, but it can be challenging to find the mm. right pace at the right time. And sometimes we need support in doing that because ultimately, from my perspective, emotions mm. are like either kind of a positive feedback loop of like, this is giving me joy. Yeah. I want more of this or, you know, more like negative feedback, like, oh, this is making me sad. I need to kind of say something or get away. Right and oftentimes even anger is not negative it can be just mm-hmm. a sign that you know one of our boundaries has been crossed and so having that perspective in that relationship mm-hmm. for many of us comes with you know having that space in our nervous system to not even be overwhelmed by the anger or the sadness in the first place so really just naming that it doesn't come
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> naturally for everyone Hey guys, it's Sam, and I'm quickly interrupting this juicy convo to tell you about the newest addition to my morning routine, which seems to be getting longer and longer every year. I've been trying for years to eat more veggies, but I'm a lazy cook and I don't love salads, so I've made a healthy compromise thanks to Organifi. The company set out to create a delicious and convenient superfood blend that actually tastes good, and thank goodness they succeeded because normally green juice ends up tasting like grass, but not Organifi's green juice powder. I'm actually currently loving the crisp apple flavor because I know I'm getting superfoods like chlorella, spirulina, and wheatgrass. It tastes great and it reduces my stress thanks to the added ashwagandha, gives me balanced energy with a touch of matcha, and ensures I support my overall health by eliminating cravings and detoxifying my whole system. If you're looking to add a superfood to your morning routine, head over to OrganifiShop.com to try their green juice powder or any one of their superfood blends for 20% off using the code SAM. That's organifyshop.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I-S-H-O-P dot And once again, you can use the code SAM for 20% off. Let's dive back into this episode.
1: I think the stories are just like you said, so imprinted so early because the child is literally learning the name for that emotion based off Mm. what you think about it, right? So it makes so much sense that the shame carries on. Um, And I actually wanted to just point out something that I learned in the Breathwork program about the difference between pain and suffering, which I very much experienced in just this grieving process where pain is really just the sensation. It's the feeling, right? The suffering is the story that is attached to it. So it's exactly what Sam was saying. And at the beginning of the grieving period, I really was experiencing the pain without suffering. But then over time, I started to have these protectors come in and these controlling ways and and behaviors to try to protect myself from experiencing more pain. And then that's when I started suffering (laughs) because there was a story about, I need to be doing this faster, or I'm not doing this enough, or, oh, now I'm, I'm behind in work and I need to be doing, there's all of these stories that started to come into play. And so, yeah, I think that's a really hard thing for people to do, to just feel and feel it all the way through. You know, I am a mom. And so with my daughter, I can do that with her. I think as an adult, it's a lot harder. um, But as an example, with my daughter, when she's having, I don't know, a, a meltdown, she's upset about something, upset about leaving her friend's house early a lot of parents try to stop that emotion, right? Oh, here, it's fine. It's fine. Just stop crying. You know, I'll give you this. I'll give you this toy. I'll give you I'll give you this TV show to calm you down. And I mean, my parents did that to my daughter many times. And I was like, please stop that. Um, because it does stop that natural processing of that emotion. They kind of cut it off before it gets to go all the way through. Whereas with my daughter, I let her just have the full range of the emotion, get all the way up. And then we do the come down together. Then I can teach the lesson right? Because it's giving that space and also showing her, I'm okay with your big emotions. I can handle your big emotions. It's safe here. It doesn't change the way I think about you. Feelings are feelings. They they don't need to be logical. They don't need to make sense. And so for her, she has no problem crying. She has no problem emoting. But Sam and I had very, very different experiences with that. So can you just explain as a child when you are being told that your your emotions are negative, what is actually happening, I guess, more on a somatic level that causes us to have such a hard time with emotions later on?
2: Mm, I, yeah, that's such a great question. I think there are nuances in this and there there's like, in, there are individual differences. Of course, yeah. Um, so I'm just gonna speak generally, but I just wanna acknowledge that. Um, As a child, we don't have the capacity in our nervous system to self-regulate. Yeah. So to self-soothe when we have an emotion. Um, When we have caregivers that are able to self-soothe themselves, you know, so, you know, they may be, they can see their child having a big emotion, but they know in their bodies that they're okay and they're safe, then they can come in from a place of regulation and then offer that co-regulation with the child. Mm. you know. And that's ideal scenario. And then when we have caregivers that are not able to have that self-regulation whether it's because of their own history whether it's because of you know experiences or whatever they're going through you know we're not shaming and blaming here but caregivers might bring their own experiences to this so their own dysregulation around the child being upset and their own stories around what that means and that affects their ability to attune to the child so their ability to be um, Inaccurate reflection mm. and they cannot offer the child the experience of being felt you know you know that sense of like when somebody mm. you're sharing an emotion with somebody and you're like oh yeah i know they get it yeah. like i can tell they got it yes that's something mm. that some of us don't experience as children but that's mm. something that allows us to build that ability to self-regulate you know later on in childhood so our caregivers and their ability to be with their emotions and to soothe their nervous system has a huge impact on our own development. Yeah. So it's beautiful that you're able to offer that to your daughter, you know, because um, unfortunately, we take that on oftentimes, mm. those those
1: stories that are um, that might be present in that environment. I will name that I'm not the greatest yeah. at self-regulating my own emotions sometimes, and it's actually yeah. been... You know, at first, for any parents out there who do lose their cool around their kids or they aren't able to regulate their emotions, um sometimes there's a lot of shame and guilt that then comes up from that, right? Because now you feel like you're damaging your child and you know, I'm very honest with her and because I name these things with her and I'm teaching her how to self-regulate, I very much name that in myself and I'll tell her, "I'm still learning how to regulate my emotions. I also have big emotions like you do and sometimes it's really hard for me to get them under control." Um but This is something that I'm working on. We're we're gonna love each other through this, and I think having that conversation is really important, at least in my relationship with her, because my parents obviously now I have the understanding that they just didn't have the tools to regulate their emotions. Like you said, they didn't know. Yeah, they weren't parented that way, so inherently they're going to parent me that way, and so there is a lot of forgiveness there and understanding. But um, I think with my daughter, what's been beautiful as a byproduct of that experience with my parents is being able to have that awareness, and so. Anyways, just for any parents out there, it's okay if you flip out. Um, It's okay and it's understandable because there has to be an acknowledgement of what I went through too. That this is also a pattern that's been imprinted in me. And so I've really been able to release a lot of shame that comes with my outburst sometimes because I have the understanding that this is just from my childhood too.
2: Mm, That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's not about being a perfect parent. And it's not about... um, in any relationship, it's not about, about about being the perfect partner or always being so in attunement with somebody else. Um, I think what we get to remember is that there's rupture and there's repair. And sometimes we're going to be... Yeah in our own process and we're gonna say the wrong thing. We're gonna react in a way that, you know, creates conflict and then we get to come back and, you know, take responsibility and be vulnerable. Not that that's always easy, I'm I'm not minimizing that, but, you know, we get to really um, repair that moment and Mm. that creates so much trust in any relationship, whether it's with our child or our partner, Mm. you know, that's huge.
0: Mm -hmm. Going back to what you said earlier, Lorianne, about attunement and reflection and um, naming those emotions, I can really see why so many people have trouble with this, like the the naming of the emotion and um, feeling that felt sense of being Mm. seen and understood because… I don't think many of our parents yeah. were able to do that. Like, m- I don't think my mom now can name mm. an emotion. I think the only one she knows is, like, happy <laughs> and angry. Like, I, I don't I don't think she has any ability to do that. And, you know, this really makes me understand, not that I didn't before, but the yeah. whole generational trauma thing, right? Which is, like, if her mom didn't know how to... um self-regulate or was not co-regulated with, then when the child is emoting, then there's no way to know how to co-regulate with them. And then so on and so forth. And so I never learned how to name emotions. That was never something that was reflected to me. I I presume I just learned them by going through grade school. And I think I still have trouble mm. naming them now. Actually I will say I do. Like I often do not know what I'm feeling. I often just think I'm the same way. I, I literally just became my mm. mom. I know happy mm. and angry. And then, like, in between, there's some other emotions there that other people have helped me identify. Like, literally, like, my own therapists are like, that's sadness. And I'm like, (laughs) oh, like, it's, it's, I don't know. And so it sometimes, to be honest, will almost Mm. make me feel hopeless. I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, all of us are so, like, messed up as kids. But then I also understand, too, like, why parents wouldn't always do what Gina does with her kid because – you know, I understand the uh, motivation behind that and the healthiness of that, but there's also parents who just feel so constricted by society. You know, like like what does it say about a parent that it allows their kid to just like right. scream in a restaurant? Right? There's so much judgment there. Like, so it's kind of like, well, we can't just let her cry for like five, you know, minutes to ten minutes. Like, we need to ch- show her that this is not okay. And so there's so much not okayness that's kind of like wrapped into our culture around emotions and i think this is why we're all suffering so much and why there's so much addiction right there's so many suppressants that are obviously one of the highest sold um consumer products in the world because we don't know how to be with these and frankly we're not we're not we're not accepted mm. oftentimes. Like I would honestly say, like Gina, you're one of the only people I feel very accepted and mm. seen around with all of my emotions. And I think
1: a lot of people could can't even say that they have one person that they can feel safe mm. with. That's so true. I mean, think about even the workplace, right? You can't come yeah. to work and cry. It's not an excuse to be like, well, I'm just having a bad day. It it's even as adults. And I think it it's more about um, that they're uncomfortable with the emotion, right? They don't know what to do with it. So even as adults to an adult, you're just like, go away. I don't want to be around this. I don't know how to deal with your emotions. So just stop it. And so, yeah, it, it really does carry on into adulthood. But I will say it does seem like there is more awareness around that lately, thanks to people like Lorianne. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess. So how can people... Um, I know you talk about how our bodies have the wisdom to be able to organically be able to release these emotions? How do our bodies do that? Because sometimes I'm like, does my body know what to do? (laughs) You know, because you feel like your mind and your body are Mm. one. And I think the somatic work is really understanding there is a difference between the two. Mm. Yeah,
2: that's beautiful. Um, I love what when it comes to our mind and our bodies working together. I love um, there's a beautiful teacher on the nervous system, Deb Dana, and what she says is story follows state. So the the thoughts that are coming up are a reflection of the state of our nervous system. So that that is already an indication Mm. of like, if my thoughts are spinning, you know, my nervous system might be very activated. Um, And so that's a big piece for people to just come to terms with of just like, oh, I'm noticing the thoughts, but then what's happening a little bit lower in our bodies, right, in our nervous system. Um, And yeah, what was the first part of your question?
0: I
1: actually don't remember.
0: <laughs> about think, how the body, yeah. about how the body has the right. wisdom to yes. regulate, yes, right. And you were basically saying you don't trust that it can, but that's your mind, mm. right? Your that mind is my is, mind, yes. Right, your mind is like I don't know, but your mind doesn't know. The body knows things that the mind doesn't. If that makes sense, like the the mind thinks, the body knows. Yeah,
2: mm. and oftentimes we kind of orient to and organized around um, experiences that were traumatic. So sometimes, you know, we've had those experiences where we did not trust the response that was coming up in our bodies. And that becomes very imprinted of just like, I can't trust my body because that one time <laughs> I froze and I didn't want to, or, or, you know, anything like that, whether it's a traumatic experience or just an experience that was challenging. But what we often do when I work with clients is that we start to orient towards experiences that actually are showing us that we can do this whether it's really small or whether it's a big experience that we where we were able to move through an emotion or where we are were able to show up you know in the way we want to show up because sometimes that's really big for mm. people of having that reference of like oh yeah in the past week like there's a moment where i really felt like myself and coming back to mm. that and feeling into that and noticing how the body responds, that really supports us. And then being able and having the resources and the capacity to move through those emotions.
0: Mm. It's interesting that you said, um, I really feel like myself because I think that felt sense of, oh, this is, this is me or like, oh, I'm, I'm back to myself. It really is that state of, calm you're not in that fight or flight but so many people have been feeling that constant or almost like chronic right fight or flight state that they're almost even identified with that they think that's who they are that's myself like i'm i'm just an anxious person or like yeah I'm, I'm just i'm just like this and for them to even come back to that state of you know rest and digest that calmness that would feel foreign mm. to them mm. yeah Right? So how how do we begin to become aware and heal that? Because I don't, I don't even know. I, I have no idea because I feel like that's the journey I've been on. I feel like I existed for a long time in a flight state and just thought that was normal. And like coming into a state of calmness feels, I want to say almost boring, mm-hmm. mm. but it, it's much safer. But to my brain, I'm like, oh, this is kind of boring. Like I was used to chaos um like I, I would just wake up and have like three cups of coffee i'm like dancing to edm music and that was just like that was just how i functioned and i i liked it like i, I was like i'm happy i'm positive I'm, I'm crazy i'm 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 you know ecstatic but i realized i was really like fried and sort of like wired mm. from that like it like it didn't actually feel good over time and so you know waking up and you know not having caffeine just you know, kind of moving slowly. It's safer, but boring sometimes. Mm. And it's it's funny because I've seen a lot of people on TikTok talk about, you know, obviously like my algorithm shows me a lot of like healing videos. And um, there's a lot of videos that talk about how like, oh, when you healed, but now you're just bored. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny because I think people really are like addicted to like toxicity and chaos. And like, there's a part of that that's a little bit exciting, mm. like, mm. right? And so- you know, becoming safe is sometimes not signaling to people like as a good thing, right? They, they mm-hmm. kind of like the, like the, the, the drive the chase. Yeah. The drama. Right. So how do we heal that's that? That's such a great question. <laughs> 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 that's a great question. Not a simple one.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that's that's usually where i like to bring a little bit of like psychoeducation and neurobiology with clients, because I think there's a lot of value in just understanding how our nervous system works. And to me, from my yes. perspective, that just us. helps <laughs> just put a framework. Yes. Um. So we have different um parts of our nervous system. Fight or flight is more of a sympathetic response. So there's, you know, that's, you know, our body mobilizing, basically getting ready to take action. So whether we're, we're fleeing whether we're fighting or just getting ready right and we often have that mm. when we have a stress response there's some tension that might show up that's like our body is is getting ready right there's charge we're ready to take action um when it comes to feeling more connected to ourselves to others that's the ventral part of our vagus nerve so the vagus nerve is our tenth cranial nerve um And that part of the vagus nerve is very much around the face, the ear, the throat. So it's connecting, it's being able to have inflections in the voice and all of those things that even for others register as safe in their bodies. And so Mm. when we are in a state of of sympathetic, we're not necessarily, you know, we're not accessing that social engagement part of our nervous system. So Mm. for most of us, um, there is a place in our nervous system that feels more like home, let's say, that feels more like our normal resting state. We have you know, a mm-hmm. set point, like a thermostat, we have a set point in our nervous system where that's our normal. And when we work with clients, you know, when I I do some one-on-one work, well, what we do is we kind of start changing that set point. And as you were saying, that mm. can feel unsettling for people because oftentimes that set point of our nervous system is very much related to our personality, If my set point is more sympathetic, has more charge, maybe I see myself as somebody who's fast-paced, who's, you know, a go-getter. Maybe I see myself as being on edge or snapping easily. And that might all be things Mm. that, you know, I think define me, you know, but that just reflect the state of my nervous system. So that change of set point needs to be titrated because if we (laughs) go from one point to another,
0: it's too much and we lose our frame of reference, you know? Mm. Yeah. It's almost like a little bit of an identity crisis.
1: <sighs> totally. Yeah.
0: yeah. Because I think we, we naturally do want to act in alignment with our identity, right? Which is why, you know, in manifestation work, we talk about law of assumption, like changing your identity, like acting as if, right? Right. But, you know, when I started feeling a little bit more calm, I was kind of like, am I boring now, like you know because i I'd always ident like I know I said that word so many times, but i really i really identified with being like an exciting exciting very person
1: loving yeah, yeah. Like, just- like I
0: feel like when I used to enter the room and like I can still be this person, but like I'm really like life of the party, I'm like, okay, dance floor, let's go, like just a little bit crazy, hyper, um I have a lot of fire in my chart, and so like to be calm was like it felt like I was losing mm. myself a little mm. bit. Yeah. And I definitely feel like I've changed and I've had to just like be okay with that. And I, and I know that I still have that, you know, fire in me, but it's definitely not what it once was. And that definitely felt like a, a mini mm. death for sure. And I think that there's a lot of people who could feel like, oh, like I'm losing myself because you're so addicted to that nervous system state. Mm. Right. So this is huge. I want to I want you to yeah, keep going.
2: <laughs> and I, I I hear you in that experience. And I've, I've seen it in clients and students before. And there's also, you know, something that I would add is that, you know, being more regulated in our nervous system, um, having more regulation relates to also having more capacity. So we have more range before being overwhelmed or collapsing. We kind of have that greater window, what we call window of capacity or window of resilience i i have more ability to handle life stressors and excitement and i have more capacity to be with my emotions for many people that a state of higher energy or, or mobilization is very much coupled to being really stressed or having a lot of things on mm-hmm. our minds um, when we start to have more regulation usually we also tend to recognize the nuances oh, I'm not anxious, I'm just excited, you know? And excitement mm. has a charge to it. There's a little bit of sympathetic activation of just like, oh yeah, there's energy here in my body, but it's not the same mm. as being very anxious. So when we have more capacity to notice those nuances in our emotions, our sensations, it it's almost like having more words for, for the language of our bodies.
1: Mm. <laughs> I really yeah, like that. Yeah, well,
0: <laughs> I was saying earlier that I think most people only have like a couple words. It's like yeah. they, they only can describe like, oh, like
1: some people are only like happy and sad or like... Or you even know. the word overwhelm. I'm so overwhelmed right now. I'm so stressed. Yeah. But stress is like, there's so many layers to that too, right? Well, it's interesting too, like saying that you're stressed, I think can like increase the stress. 100%. Right?
0: So I really try not to say that word because that word is so it's so um, like conditioned to already provoke that response in me, right? Mm -hmm. Like even just just hearing it, it's like stress. It's like the
1: body's like, oh, what? Are we stressed? Right? So, um, well, I I like the distinction um, that I've been learning a lot, uh, which is not identifying with that emotion. So instead of saying I am stressed, saying I'm experiencing stress right now. That's been a pretty key distinction for me that's helped me to be like, okay, I'm separate from this experience. I'm just the one experiencing it. And that's helped me mentally kind of separate myself from that and not just be it. Because like you, Sam, I think my identity was very much the one that could handle a lot of stress, the Mm -hmm. one that could have a lot on my plate. I work a ton. I work 24-7 and I never get burnt out because I can handle it. And so it was weird to then change my capacity and change what those boundaries yes. were because it made me feel like, am I not going to be successful after this? Am I not? Yeah, less productive. I'm less productive. I'm, I'm not, well, what am I going to do then if I'm not going to be working this much? So it is, it does take time. Um, and that's what I call spiritual Tetris. Sometimes, um, sometimes it's a person. Sometimes it's an experience. Sometimes it's letting go of an identity. But when something shifts in you, it, it does take a little bit of time for things to settle. And that's why I call it Tetris. Because you kind of have to find a new spot for things in a way where it does feel unsettling at first, and it's just foreign. So it's not that it feels bad, but I can see how some people might feel like this is wrong. This is not. This is not good. So I'm glad that we're naming that it takes time to adjust that, and at first it might feel like it's not right, but it actually could mean that you're on the right track. Yeah. I guess.
0: Well, I think I think like for people like you and me, and so many people who are listening, we we get um, the story is that if I stay this. Not necessarily anxious, but like if i if I perform at this capacity, which it which is anxious, right? if I keep doing a lot of things, then I'll be safe,
1: right? Mm. so to
0: actually not feel that way can almost signal unsafe, yeah, like and i I felt that way for a long time, where if I didn't feel you know anxiously uh motivated to do something, I was kind of like, oh no, like am i am i lazy now like am i not going to do anything and you know periods of rest i would love to talk about this but like rest for so many people although we know it's necessary you know everybody mm. has to rest you know not just sleeping but like you know literally moving through your day with intentional rest you know we are so conditioned to think that's bad like like but not even on a logical level although although I do think we intellectualize that rest is like, you know, for the week or whatever. But you know, I think literally like psychosomatically, like rest for me was like, dangerous. Mm-hmm. It was something that was going to stand in the way of like me getting to where I want to go. Like, you know, it was in, um it, it was in conflict with my identity that I was going to, you know, be the person who was going to, you know, use every day to like achieve her dreams, whatever. And so this rest piece, which is really missing from so many of our self-care routines like how can we start to I think people like know like okay I need to rest I need to rest and they'll try to do it but then they like try to make a thing out of resting which is not really resting so how can which is what I used to do so how can we start to rewire rest as a safe thing because I don't think people feel safe to rest Mm, that's such Mm. a beautiful question Um, I would say just to normalize that experience,
2: I would say that probably 95% of the people that I work with have trouble with Mm. resting. So just to name that, um, there is something, there is an individual aspect of that and I'll get on, get to this in a second, but there's also such a cultural impact of, of, you know, Mm -hmm. what it means to belong in society, what it means to be an achiever and how that relates to rest and stress, um, I will say that when it comes to us as individuals, rest is is a um, blended state in our nervous system. So we have that dorsal vagus part of our vagus nerve that allows us to to be immobilized, but it's also present with that social engagement system. So I'm immobilized and I'm safe. Already for some Mm. of us, that part of our nervous system has never been very active or is not easily accessible for some of us um, being you know immobilized mean that means that we're not safe means that there's a threat we're collapsed we're freezing so I just want to acknowledge that there's an individual aspect to sometimes we need to take our time with rest and titrate that Um, and there is Mm -hmm. also you know that cultural aspect as I was saying where um, we want to belong belonging is so important many of us you know Feel like that belonging piece is so tied in with our social status, our level of productivity. And so that has an impact on, you know, the thoughts that might come up when we try to rest and slow down. Um, So there are layers to this. I would say, depending on the individual story, we are going to work with it differently. But if I were to talk about it in a very kind of general and broad way... um, Something Mm -hmm. that I notice is that many people are going to go to work and be very high energy, fast-paced. And then we get home and we collapse on the couch, right? (laughs) And it's very kind of like a light switch on or off. Um, That's Mm -hmm. not necessarily rest. That collapse is not necessarily restorative. Um, What I like to support people in doing is like slowing that down. So let's say I have a session and I'm very high energy, very engaged. Um, I'm not gonna sit on the couch right after that. I might go for a walk. Let's say we we kind of mm. see it as like a volume dial, and instead of like turn it all the way down, I'm gonna start to slowly turn it down. I'm gonna go for a walk, let some of that energy move through my body, or do a workout. Then I might, you know, talk to somebody I love, get a little bit of connection then I might sit on the couch. And now like that energy has moved through. I feel more connected. So having that sense Mm. of like, you know, taking little steps and not going from one (laughs) extreme in terms of our state to another is usually pretty supportive. Mm. And I feel like that's pretty accessible for most of us.
1: Mm. I need to do that more.
0: Yeah, and we haven't even really ta- like tapped into the fact that most people, even before that like sort of collapse, they're usually like drinking or like smoking or 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 overeating, like doing something to kind of, yeah, get rid of the remaining stress from the day if there's any of that. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And then also creating this habit pattern of not being able to once again like feel whatever is present. So we're just numbing and then like passing out. And then I, I think so many people are in that cycle of just like, literally, um, fight or flight. So they're like rushing through the day, feeling anxious, getting it all done, and then just completely burning out. And, you know, burnout is just so prevalent. And, um, I think that it's because we're conditioned to think we have to get things done that way. But as I've learned to trust my body more, you know, I feel a lot calmer these days. I'm actually getting more done in less time. Yeah. But it that takes so much time to you have to build that trust within yourself like if you've only ever been able to achieve certain results and you're attached to those results and you've done it in that way like it's so hard to uncondition that Um, it was so hard for me and yeah. I wonder what practices and tools or what types of support do you recommend to people who want to try to change this relationship with themselves? Because I think that people on a logical intellectual level are like, okay, I know this is unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to like shoot my body with like coffee and stimulants or whatever, and then like pass out with a drink before I go to sleep. But like, how do I change that? Because that's literally all they feel works yeah, for them. That's mm-hmm. such a good
2: question. Um, I would start by saying that those, um, adaptation adaptive strategies of whether it's you know for some of us it's scrolling on the phone for others it's netflix it can be sex mm-hmm. it can be drinking eating smoking you know there's so many um i would say that having some compassion for the fact that it's our body trying to to manage that's literally yeah. all it is it's a management strategy and so as much as we can notice that we don't like that we're doing that usually noticing that we don't like it is also not helpful enough for us to stop it. <laughs> Ask anyone no. trying to put their phone <laughs> away before going to a bed. <laughs>
1: <Right>. Totally.
2: <laughs> um, so what I would say is that when we, you know, working with the nervous system and building more capacity in the nervous system, there are different types of approaches um, and, you know, Everybody can be very discerning of who they choose to work with. Um, that's also really important mm. in this this day and age. But as we build capacity in our nervous system, as, you know, there's more space to be with the emotion, to let those emotion move through, those stress responses move through, there is usually, mm-hmm. you know, there's no need to rely on those adaptation strategies. There's no need to rely on the phone because I'm able to be with that overwhelm. So what I've noticed in clients is that usually when there is more capacity, those defenses just kind of naturally fall away. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's been really interesting because like what Sam, I think Sam said it earlier that things feel so much harder when you're in that state. And honestly, that's how I felt yesterday before so just to frame this, I had a session with Orian yesterday that honestly shifted me out of the state that I was stuck in for, for weeks. And I remember that day, I didn't even want to talk to anybody. Little things like going to check my banking felt like there's no way I can do that today, which they're simple things, but they felt so hard to me. But after I found that safety in my body... Then it was like, oh, I can totally do that. I can't believe I thought that was hard before. And one thing that I want to share with people that I've also learned in the um, course is, uh, again, about the vagus nerve. And the reason why I want to touch on this is because there have been so many times where I'm like, I feel anxious, but nothing's wrong. Like, in my mind, I know I'm fine. Like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I feel fine, but my body feels anxious. And there's been so many times like that. I know, Sam, for you, too, where... In our minds, oh, yeah. everything makes sense. And then I get it, mad at myself that I yes. actually... Because
0: I'm like, there's nothing what the There's fuck? nothing Like, wrong. there's
1: nothing. Yeah. So like, why am I just complaining? And then there's a shame around that. But this blew my mind when I learned this in the program um, about our vagus nerve. I can't remember the exact percentage. It was 80 or 90 percent. It was saying uh, that through the vagus nerve, the messages go... Is it 80% 80 percent or 90 percent? 80. So 80 percent of the messages in the vagus nerve go from the body to the brain. And then only mm-hmm. 20% is going from the brain to the body. So then it makes sense that the, your body almost has a louder voice. And that's what's happening when in your mind, you're not anxious, but because your body has more of that voice in that nerve, your body's, gonna, your body's feelings are going to be louder than your mind's knowledge. Did yeah. that make sense?
2: And mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. I love about um, what you're saying is that, you know, our bodies, we have animal bodies. You know, we, we are mammals.
0: We often forget mm. that. I know. <laughs> Yes. Whenever I remember this, I'm like, I'm a mammal, (laughs) like driving a car. Like, this is crazy. (laughs) And I look around at, like, the buildings and I'm like, we're like mammals that just, like, built all this stuff. Like, we're crazy. Like, And, like, we we forget that we – yes, these animal bodies. And I'm um, sorry to cut you off, Lorian, but I just heard this recently on a podcast and it just blew my mind. And, you know, speaking of, like, we're, we're obviously sharing this on a social platform and we're um, we're using social media for our businesses and for social connection. But this person was saying, like, you know, our brains are not built for this. You're supposed to know people who know you. Ooh. And I was like, that is weird. Like when you think of like celebrities or like social media influencers, like it's like millions of people know you and you don't know them. That is not what your brain is. Designed for, mm-hmm. and it it makes sense that that would be so overwhelming. But anyways, sorry, that was just an aside. I want to go back to the body, <laughs> the biggest nerve. Yes. Yeah, the body giving the eighty percent of the message. <laughs> yeah, over the but mind. I
2: love I love that you're naming that because social media does have a big impact on our nervous system, and we can get to that for sure. Um, and just to jump back to what, where we were at, um, you know, those responses, those fight or flight responses, are old parts of our nervous system. They are parts of our nervous system that are mm-hmm. in animals, you know, but You know, because we have different lifestyles than, (laughs) you know, any other mammals, um, we might have a fight or flight response, um, a fight response after reading an email, you know, and sometimes our brain is going to tell us, well, it's just an email, like I'm fine, you know, and that's something that can come Mm. in. And what that speaks to is that we have an ability because... You know, we have this beautiful brain that's a lot more evolved than other mammals. We have that ability to override those responses that are in our bodies, you know? And we see that in in animals, like, you know, an animal that was chased is gonna shake it off, right? Discharge that energy that was built off. How many Mm. times do we override that as humans? You know, I'm not gonna shake it off because I'm at work and that would look ridiculous. (laughs) You know, people often Mm. name that to me in sessions. You know, I just can't do that you know and then there's this belonging piece that's so strong and something that Mm. we get to work to is finding micro ways you know to to discharge that energy i always you know show my clients like moving that finger and sometimes under your desk you know and really Mm. visualizing that energy moving out or under you know the soles of our feet letting that energy move out into the earth you know and we get to find ways um to discharge that energy and move through those responses because, you know, it's easy to feel like there's no reason yet those responses and that activation might still be there in our body, you know, about movement. And what I love is that movement and sensations are our first language, you know, before we were able to talk, Mm. there's something so natural when it comes to moving our bodies. Um, And, you know, when I do movement sessions with people, I like to name that, you know, it doesn't have to look like a so you think you can dance audition because (laughs) people (laughs) often have, you know, (laughs) what we see on Instagram about people doing a movement practice. It like looks a certain way. It doesn't have to look a certain way. It doesn't have to be big and it can be really, really small and it can be effective. Mm. Um, What I would offer is, you know, a great place to start is, developing the capacity to notice where the activation might be in our body. Um, For some people, they use the word stress. Um, I tend to stay away from that word just because it means different things to different people. There's a lot of individual definitions of stress, but when there is that charge or that activation in the body, noticing where it is and noticing if there's an impulse. Usually if we stay with it long enough, there will be a movement that will want to happen. So maybe it's a shake, maybe Mm. it's stomping, maybe it's throwing, punching, you know? On a pillow, (laughs) just naming (laughs) that. Um, But you know, noticing what movement wants to happen, and sometimes it Mm. doesn't feel accessible for everybody to go into that full movement that feels too big or that feels very scary. Um, And we can start Mm. stay if we stay with it. Can we even visualize going into that movement? And what does that Mm. move as we just stay with that visual? You know, there's a lot of of um, power in just giving ourselves the, even the permission to think about going into that movement. Yes.
0: Yes. Mm. My my heart breaks for so many people because, you know, I grew up as a dancer. And so, you know, movement is just such an integral part of my life and always has been. And, you know, ecstatic dance and all these things just make sense to me because I'm like, yeah, like we're moving the energy. And, you know, when I was growing up, I never really dealt with feelings of anxiety. I don't feel because I, I just move through them so often. Like it just, it just went through my body but you know we deal with a culture where people normalize saying things like oh i can't dance and it's like Mm. what does that even mean like you look at a baby and i swear they're so cute like if you turn on the music they immediately start bouncing like they're dancing and this dance doesn't have to have any particular form or technique but you know as soon as you get older like if you're not like a trained dancer it's like oh i can't do that and so there's so many people i feel like who are just completely missing out on this beautiful form of natural um, self-regulation which is dancing and I feel like especially in North America we've lost that like in other cultures this is normal like Mm. I'm thinking about in Africa like dancing in community is like a normal thing like people just do it outside inside whatever it's normal and it's not like you're there's no judgment it's like it's just a known thing it's like we just we just dance like move the energy and like feel good but in North America, it's like you only dance if you are a dancer or, or like here like like in the club. The club. <laughs> yeah, and even yeah. in the club, only like 20% of the people are dancing, right? True, Everyone else yeah. is just kind of standing around. So this is, this breaks my heart that people are not
1: dancing more. Mm. So petition for more dance parties. More movement. More <laughs> movement. I will name though that it is awkward at first. Um, I remember, like Sam said, a lot of therapist or coaches asking me, where do you feel the pain? And I just would be like all over. I I didn't know how. I was like, I don't know everywhere. But it's interesting if you just keep having that inquiry, how much more you're then able to notice exactly where it is. And I love that you said that, Lorianne, because I didn't even know I was doing that, but that we intuitively know how to move our bodies. I can't tell you how many times I've been at a breathwork session or meditation. And all of a sudden, I'm like rocking back and forth. Mm. And I don't even know I'm doing it until I'm like, wait, wait, am I moving? Or I instinctively just hold my chest and I kind of hug myself. Another thing that's really been helpful for me, again, before I even learned about somatic work was honestly going into fetal position when Mm -hmm. I cry. There's something really comforting about that or, you know, hugging a pillow and finding something that brings comfort in a physical way. Um, but I wanted to just touch on that because if you are someone that might be going into sessions like this and you feel awkward moving or naming what you're feeling, just normalizing that and that it does take some time to really tune into your body and really to trust that that movement is what needs to take place because I think my ego previously would have gotten in the way and said, you look stupid, don't move like that. you know. And so that's part of it too. So really letting go of what we look like and what we think it should look like. Um, takes time. Um, but I've definitely noticed in my own practice that that ability to tune in and naturally let my body flow. And even when I'm breathing, sometimes I kind of move my arms up and down, kind of visualizing the energy getting out of my body. And that's also really helped. I know Sam, when she does her even, what what was it, the Tai Chi or yes, you do it in a park but- where you like bring in the energy and you like pull it into your body. I love doing
0: that. I stand in like an X position where like my my feet are out in like a second position in ballet. And I just literally imagine just stretching my arms as far as they can go and just grabbing all of the air and then just like, like just like blowing it all out. I just, I love that feeling of just stretching. Yeah. And even stretching, like people don't stretch. Like Mm. we don't, we don't move this energy. So...
2: Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that's so beautiful. What I love about both of your shares is um, there is something natural in moving our bodies and we all do it. There are so Mm. many attempts at regulation that people don't notice that they necessarily have, like bringing a hand on the heart. Or I do a lot of gesture work with clients. So, you know, people are going to say there's like a weight on my shoulders and, you know, placing their hands on their shoulder. What if we were to stay with that gesture? What what happens here? What if we were to lift it even 1%? What changes? So those gestures are Mm. movements too, but we just don't think about them as movements, you know?
0: Mm. That's a really good point. (laughs) That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually feeling like I want to move like in circles right now. Isn't that interesting? Like that's just just what came up for me. I was like, I want my body to circulate, like undulate. Um,
1: But anyways... (laughs) Maybe there's energy that just kind of wants to move around. Movement is just so
0: natural for me. I'm moving constantly. Like I just, I can't sit still. That's harder for
1: me. Well, that was actually really hard for me because I'm... Polar opposite. Like, I did not do any sports. I didn't, I don't do anything physical. So, Sam would always talk about how she needs to move her body all the time. And I honestly thought that's just, that's not me, but everybody needs to release things through their body. And that's what I love about this work. Um, One thing I want to touch on is something that you had mentioned before, um, just about how our nervous system can really help to support us in becoming our true selves. And I feel like I really understand that now, but I would love for you to explain how does that happen? How does our nervous system guide us to being our true self?
2: I love that so much also because that, that was true in my own experience, in my own journey, and my own healing. Um, so I feel, I feel so close to mm-hmm. this question and also its content. Um, I feel like when we have more mm-hmm. capacity, when we have more regulation in our system... I'm not my emotions. I can choose. I have mm. enough space to maybe notice a reaction, but I get to choose. I don't become that reaction. So I I can mm. notice that there's a part of me that wants to snap, for example, but I have enough spaciousness to choose to speak differently. And to me, having that choice, mm. it's it always kind of reinforces like, I get to choose who I want to be and how I want to show up. And to me, that kind of really changes everything because then I'm not in a yeah. reactive state and I have enough spaciousness to really come back to myself and come back to the person that I want to show up as, whether it's, you know, at work or with my students or in my relationship, you know, I get to choose how I wanna speak, with what tone I want to speak and how I wanna act, right? Because sometimes we get just caught up in the overwhelm and the, you know, the body speeding up. So there's so much power and beauty in coming mm. back to that center, you know. And for me, that feels like my center. And for somebody else, it can be their feet. You know, I have clients who have such a an important sense of ground in their feet we can feel our sense of self in different ways but having that ability to come home to ourselves and feeling that sense of spaciousness to me restoring that choice is very much related to trauma healing because when we when there's trauma usually we didn't have a choice to have that experience whether it's you know a very big traumatic experience whether it's something that didn't happen like neglect um there was a sense that there was no agency mm. and no choice. So restoring that, cho- that choice of how I want to show up um, from my perspective is very, very healing and brings us back to who we really are and that aliveness of being who we really are.
0: Mm. Mm. Like we really mm. are like who we choose to be, not our reactions. Yeah. And um, yeah. I think that if we identify with our reactions, then we really lose that connection to who we are. And who we want to be. Because I I don't... Mm. Like, I think that when we come from the reaction, that's when I feel the least like myself. And I think that's why there's so much shame and guilt afterwards. Like, you know, I can imagine, obviously, Gina, you know, getting mad at your child or, like, me getting mad at my partner or even, like, my parents. I'm just like, like, afterwards, I'm just like... That was just not me, you know? And I I think there's enough awareness too with the people who love us. They know that and they can forgive that. Yeah. But um, if we can create, like you said, that sense of spaciousness where like, I I feel okay, like I feel like myself getting angry. And I I was actually just telling Gina about this before our call, how there was a couple of moments yesterday where I felt like I I could get upset right now in the normal way, but I didn't. (laughs) I I, I just felt like, okay, like there's a little bit of annoyance, but that's just not how I'm going to respond because I know I'm not going to get the result that I want. From that reaction. But I did, I used to have yeah. zero space between me and reaction. Yeah. Like I was, oh my gosh. I was just, and Gina too, like I'm like a pressure cooker like at all times. And like any slight movement of that yeah. guy, I was like, pfft, I was just like, and there was also, I think I have to really forgive myself because... Th- it also felt really good to express anger. Like not after, in the moment. It's like that wants to leave my body. Like that it was somehow l- lying there latently um, without any consciousness. And so that like explosion just felt really good. Like there are times that I'm not, pr- I'm not proud of where I'm just like verbally just like going. I'm just like saying every mean thing. I'm just like, I'm saying it super loud. But like there's a part of me that feels so good as I'm doing that which sounds terrible and like kind of it makes sense like why people can like become mm-hmm. violent right because like there's I'm not trying to justify yeah. that but there is something that needs to kind of be released and that's not a healthy way of doing it but like i i can understand that now and i feel a lot of compassion for myself because um that was just the state that my body was in and it it wanted that release and so i guess one of the final things i kind of want to go into is really like normalizing a lot of our coping strategies right because you yeah. know i used to be really um a really bad binge eater. I went to therapy for that. Like, I remember just literally, I remember like, oh my God, my poor self. I remember Googling like, can you die from eating too much food? Like, I literally thought I was going to die because I like just, just could not exist without like either like sleeping all day because I didn't want to eat and then like waking up and feeling so mm. uncomfortable and just eating because it was like, and yeah, mm. it was, I know now looking back, I'm like, oh, I just didn't feel safe and that was the only thing I could do to like assuage any sort of like emotional pain. But, you know, looking back, I can see like, how much pain there was and so yeah I want to I just want to normalize you know like drinking smoking eating um you know scrolling on doom scrolling for hours you know like why are we doing this and um how can we bring some compassion to it because I know that by Hating it and judging it is is not helping either. Um, because I've been there. Yeah, Yeah.
2: and you know we get to remember that behavior is an attempt at regulation. Um, we're trying to come back to a more regulated Mm. state. If I'm overwhelmed, then I go scroll on my phone. It's bringing my attention away from the overwhelm, and that feels like you know it might feel like I'm regulated. I'm probably not, but it's an attempt, right? And we get to remember that. We are, I believe, this is my personal belief that we're all doing the best we can with the tools that we have, with the nervous system Mm. that we have. And for some people, those are the tools that they have, you know, and with the right support, with the Mm. right space and permission and, you know, the right time sometimes. Sometimes in session, like, it's all about taking the time to just stop and just be with what's here. And so... I think that there's a lot of beauty mm. in giving ourselves the opportunity to have that support. And as we do so and as we learn, there's just no need for those coping strategies anymore because, you know, we are able to be with what's here. Mm. And sometimes it's hard. Like I don't want to make it sound like it's always easy. Sometimes we are more present and we contact an emotion and, you know, things like grief, things like sadness. This is like not pleasant to be with. But yet, sometimes we have a sense of, like, yeah, it's not fun, but I'm really here right now. And there's something that feels yeah. good about that mm. on some level,
1: you know? Mm-hmm. 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 I totally agree. I mean, I know in my session with you yesterday, I think that was probably the— part was those moments of silence where you would notice that I was starting to feel safety. I was starting to feel comfort. And you would just ask me to sit with that. Where I know if I was in my own meditation, I'd be like, okay, I feel safe. On to the next thing. I wouldn't have sat there to really let it sink in, which is why I think I kept experiencing these little bursts of relief over the past few weeks. But then as soon as a trigger came in, I was overboard again and exploding. But I think having that time to really give myself the space to settle into and fully integrate into that feeling of safety really helped it to just be felt in my body and and not just in a short burst. So that really helped. And just a final note, just about kind of what Sam was saying too, about these patterns that we have. Another thing that's really helped me is to... Instead of saying, "Oh, my gosh, I did it again," or, "Oh my gosh, like i I, I snapped again, I, I say, like, my pattern snapped again. my the cycle did it. You know, instead of it feeling like it's me, I, I tell myself mm-hmm. I'm a healing person. I'm not the pattern. You know, i'm not I'm not the response. I'm the healing person. I'm the healing being. But the response was my pattern. And something about that separation, I think, offers me a lot more compassion um instead of making it mean, like, I'm such a terrible person." Yeah. Um,
2: And I, I love that. And that's so beautiful if it works for you and that can be such a great resource. Um,
1: yeah,
2: yeah, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, in that cycle that we were naming at the beginning of, of Uh, rupture and repair we have that in our relationships with others but we also Mm. have that in our relationship with ourselves right and sometimes Mm. reacting a certain way yes and noticing that after especially and you know we don't like it it's not fun to see that part of ourselves come over or noticing that we were overwhelmed and we acted out um and you know we get to have that repair with ourselves That's that gets to be here, too. And be like, hey, I, Mm. you know, that sucked. And I did the best I could in that moment, you know.
0: Mm. I love Mm. that you said that because I, oh, my God, I was missing that piece with myself for so long. I think it was like rupture, 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 judgment, shame, blame, guilt more rupture. Yeah. Like I think that you're right in our relationships with relationships with others, you know, the repair part kind of makes sense, you know, enough time passes and you're like, okay, like I'm sorry, mm-hmm. like and, and and there's a sense of like resolve, um hopefully, otherwise mm-hmm. the relationship dissolves. But, you know, with myself, I think my relationship to me was dissolving for so long because I never I never did the repair part with me and only yeah. in my healing journey in the past like few years has been attempts to do the repair. But you know what? I have to give myself so much compassion because it was like 27 plus years of like rupture. <laughs> and like now well, I'm trying yeah. to do the repair and it's so funny. Recently, my therapist was like, you're doing great. Like we we just started. Like, you know, we're we're undoing a lot and I'm like, why am I not repaired yet? And, she, and right. it's like, well, maybe it's going to take 27, 28 years and I'm like, oh, okay. And that bothered me <laughs> at first, but now I'm like, okay, that's the journey I'm going on. Like at least I'm doing this consciously now. Mm-hmm. Um at least and not later on. Like I'm glad I caught it now. And so, yeah, the repair, I love that you said has to come has to start with us and I really think the relationship with ourselves is the basis for all the relationships we have outside of ourselves so if you can repair yeah if you can repair with you then the repair I think happens that much quicker and more efficiently Mm. with others too
2: yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and strengthening that relationship with ourselves I think um yeah to me it's always about compassion it's always what we get to come back to whether it's with ourselves or with others um just remembering that you know we are not our past and our histories and our experiences and yet it had an impact on us and you know we're as i said we're doing mm. the best we can and especially if we're healing you know every time somebody reaches out to me to to you know um start Working together, there's always, you know, for me, I always recognize that as such a big step, you know, reaching out for support. That's huge, you know, yeah. and that's a hallmark of, of health and healing already, even prior to any session mm. and noticing the health in our system noticing what's working, you know, even if it's our adaptive strategies, like that's health in our system somewhere, attempting regulation, attempting to find support. And sometimes in our relationship, we kind of seek Mm. connection in the wrong places. And that's also an attempt to find connection. So not to say that that's easy or that's all there is. But when we get to really recognize that in ourselves, that can be really
1: supportive in building that compassion for ourselves. Mm. I love how you reframe that That these patterns that come up It it is a signal that your body's trying to help It's trying to regulate That helps me a lot Because this past week I've noticed one of my Habits or my tendencies was the control thing. I started to try to control every experience because I was trying to protect myself from having any negative experience. But inherently, then I was also blocking out positive experiences, and I was finding myself snapping about the smallest things because it didn't go to plan. But and I was judging myself for that. You know, why am I snapping so much? And now I can see that oh, that was just me protecting me. Which I, then it looks like a beautiful thing. You know, it looks like a really beautiful act of love um, from within, and then you get to celebrate the wisdom of your body that sends out this signal without you even needing to do anything to tell you that there's something you know, wrong within or something that's not fully aligned in there. So I really love how you explain that. Um, as In our closing, I actually really want to ask you, and I'm really curious because obviously I am a student of yours, um, but something that really helps Sam and I and I know our listeners is to normalize that the healing journey is cyclical and that even if you are someone that knows everything about regulation and, you know, feeling safety in your body that even these teachers also experience contrast and hard times where they get out of state. And so I would love to hear from you. Is there a common theme or um, just a lesson that you feel like you keep on cycling and circling back to um, just to help to normalize that for our listeners?
2: Oh, do we have like another hour?
0: <laughs> 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 um, <yeah>. Part two. <laughs> um, there's
2: uh, there's so many, so many lessons. Um, I feel like for me um you know I in my own history I have a lot of very early trauma the first few months of my life were really hard because I had health mm. issues and that impacted you know my whole attachment um that impacted my whole ability to feel safe to feel protected in the world so for me um mm. it's almost mm. like that neural pathway of like the world is unsafe and dark is like a highway mm. and then I have this other neural pathway that I've been building really hard that feels like a weird little path and I always get to kind of come back to like okay let me orient to safety let me notice what's safe here the connection that's safe let me notice that I'm protected that I'm held that I have support you know so having that Mm -hmm. awareness of like oh yeah that that experience in my very very early life you know really created this neural pathway of like oh this is, you know, present in the world. And then as an adult now, um, you know, coming back to like what am I oriented to in the world? What am I organizing mm. myself around and my perspective around? And you know, that's something that I come back to time and time again. And, you know, that I've mm. worked on with with a lot of my support system,
0: you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's so beautiful. It also really It just makes me um, feel so compassionate to so many people because you you might not know why you are the way that you are, but now as an adult, you get to reorient and it reminds me of that quote that um, it's a question, but a quote. It says, do I live in a friendly or a hostile universe? Hmm. And I think that's a, That's a question we get to answer for ourselves every day instead of allowing our our trauma, right, to respond to Mm. what's happened to it. Um, So, yeah, I love the idea of finding the true self, like you said earlier, through our nervous system healing.
1: Lorianne, I learned so much and this has actually been, uh, yeah, just very supportive following our session um, yesterday. And as someone who's just becoming more used to feeling into my body instead of just going to my mind, this was extremely supportive and I've learned so much. So thank you so much. And Lessons. I guess, where can people find you to book a session? Um, because you do transformative touch sessions, breath work, um, somatic healing. Um, yeah, where can people find you to book a session?
2: Yeah, so you can find me on my website, which is just laurianbierre.com. And uh, also on Instagram, I'm pretty active, Laurie a. Briere. Um, all the links will be provided, I'm guessing. <laughs> but yeah, that's where you can
1: find me. Yes, Perfect. everything well, will be again in the show notes. And we hope to talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Ariane.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this honest conversation. We hope it brought you peace,
1: clarity, and a little bit further along your spiritual journey. If you loved this episode, it would mean the world to us if you left us a five-star rating and review so we can bring you more conscious conversations, spiritual topics, and guests. Here's to spiraling higher.